Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right. Uh, today, I'd like to welcome Tim Rand from Mercy Corps Ventures to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. And um, Tim and I have um, gotten to bump into each other in a lot of different venues over the years, and especially over the fall. There was just a lot of cool uh, interconnections and um, got to spend some time together talking on panels and other things at events. Tim, I wanted to have you on the podcast, um, especially, you know, I think part of the motivation was uh, after Medellin and the time that we spent together at the Greenhouse Retreat, um, but just you know, I was I wanted to have you on the Planetary Regeneration podcast to just be able to, you know, have a conversation about the work that you're do- doing with Mercy Corps Ventures and why um, Mercy Corps Ventures has such conviction around uh, Web three and the role of Web three in the the mission, the larger mission of Mercy Corps, the the not for profit. And um, just one little more bit of information for the audience, I would sort of consider Mercy Corps Ventures probably, in a lot of ways, one of the most sophisticated refi investors. They've been at it for a while, sort of before, you know, I think they were working on sort of like blockchain for uh, ecological and social good before the refi um, explosion happened. And I think um, have a solid grounding in the, in the domain, right. Of, of environmental and social health and, and then have built a really sophisticated kind of tech and, and finance side through Mercy Corps Ventures. So it's always been fun to, to jam with Mercy Corps Ventures and um, yeah. So I'm excited Tim, to have you on to just uh chat with us a little bit. Um, To get us started, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself to the audience a little bit? Like, who is Tim? And like, how did you find yourself in the position that you're in right now with Mercy Corps? Yeah, thanks, Gregory. And yeah, I know, appreciate those, those kind words. I mean, we we try our best and hustle, but, um, but largely, they've kind of found and worked in Web3 built on the shoulders and relationships with folks like yourself and Pranav and John and a whole host of others out there, right? So it's been great to be kind of part of this community and, and hopefully, you know, playing a good role and pushing it forward. Um, but yeah, Greg, as, as mentioned, my name's Tim. I'm managing partner of Mercy Corps Ventures. Have, um, you know, been here since we started the fund, which I'll describe in a little bit. But um, my background uh, in kind of building companies and investing in emerging markets started um, essentially when I was in college, helping uh, to launch a few different uh, businesses in Southeast Asia um, with friends and kind of colleagues originally around ecotourism and then moving into housing microfinance, um, worked with one of the first housing microfinance uh, startups in Cambodia, uh, allowing individuals uh, at that point to, to access uh, reasonably priced and, and risk-adjusted uh, terms uh, for acquiring their first home, uh, so-called first finance MFI. Uh, you know, at that point, it was one of the biggest inhibitors for individuals in, in Cambodia in particular uh, to uh, purchase a house um, post, kind of, you know, the conflict of many decades there uh, was down payment of 60, 70%. And then, you know, interest rates as high as 20, 30, 40% per year. Um, and so really came together with a group of, of expats and Khmer, uh shareholders and said there must be a better way to do this and increase access for people to uh, housing and shelter. 
um, under terms that are you know much more equitable and uh, and reasonable. Uh, so I worked in that for about a year and then jumped into a venture builder, uh, building a number of uh, companies across retail, food and beverage, uh, across water and sanitation, like distributed water systems. Uh, and then eventually landed on the investor side, working in different impact funds out of Singapore and East Africa. Um, and so I've been on both sides of the table, um, always really interested, I'd say, in kind of uh, ag tech, agriculture. Uh, I've done a number of deals in like that space and food systems. Um, and then also increasingly over the last decade, you know, as, as a father, as somebody who's spent the last really 18 years living in different emerging markets across South America, Southeast Asia and, and Latin America, um, just really excited about the climate space, um, being proximate to those leaders on the ground who are building great things, fighting systems that are inequitable and, and really driving extraction and degeneration. Um, really have found myself gravitating towards more of like a climate lens towards kind of all the sectors I'm excited about, whether it's ag, food systems, fintech, and what have you. Um, and hence, you know, how our fund now is really focused on climate resilience as one of the main uh, areas and outcomes that we're seeking. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there and then happy to dive more into Mercyport Ventures. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that's exciting. So before we jump deeper into Mercy Corps Ventures, um, I'm curious. Do you personally have a sort of uh, Web3 curiosity focus like in your own personal life? Um, yeah. And, and how did that intersection interweave? Um, I'm always curious about how people sort of like find themselves in the, I guess, the crypto blockchain world. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, gosh, it's it's always interesting kind of retrospectively how one kind of comes into different communities or technologies or, or just around certain people. Um, I think it started out with me when I was living in uh, Indonesia back in 2014 and meeting a friend of mine, um, Joe, who'd be, who is the head of product at Sendit. And their company um, um, had pitched us as kind of a blockchain-enabled, crypto-enabled, like P2P um, digital wallet uh, for Indonesia. That was their first kind of impetus. Um, and this was 2014, so like relatively early days, right? And I remember we analyzed it. I mean, we, our fund had just gotten started in Mercyport Ventures. But on a personal note, I was like making some small angel tickets and just kind of interested. Um, and that was at that point where I think my lens was, um, oh, this sounds scary. It sounds, you know, like, um, yeah, Silk Road, you know, it's kind of that initial like reaction of what you read in the me media. So it's like, ah, this, this, you know, isn't for me, isn't for us. Uh, but, you know, they had wild success. Um, and I think that they had wild success and essentially getting tons of active users. And I think that for me kind of merged that world where it was like, you know, you have an initial impression of something, but then you see the utility really delivered for people that I know, right, that are actually transacting using it because it's cheaper, it's faster, it solves pain points they have. And I think it caused me to reflect on um, really kind of blockchain and crypto as a backend, uh, the mullet, if you will, back then, and to like kind of get over my initial biases and, and dive a little bit deeper into it. Um, cause this was an incredibly sharp team. Like, I mean, they really know what they're doing. And despite the fact that they ended up pivoting away from that and then finding, you know, the market they have now and a multi-billion dollar company, um, they, I think that was kind of like one of those instances that was personal to me. And then also kind of demonstrated the impact it can have on users that I'm around all the time. And kind of unlike curiosity. 
And then from there, I'd say it was more like interacting with people who in the early days were doing a lot of arbitrage between markets on like Bitcoin and local Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't come to the investment space from like a Wall Street background. So I, you know, trading currencies, things that that doesn't interest me. Um, so a lot of the people I was surrounded by in this community originally in like 2014 to 2017, it was it was kind of about speculation, about trading assets. It was it's about making money, um, which is, you know, great. Some people really love that. They love like the, the analysis of it. Not where I, you know, not where I spend my free time, maybe to the detriment of my financial status. But um, but it wasn't until I'd say like 2018 to 2020 where I, I met some really key individuals uh, like Alpin, who is on our team and now works in Borderless Capital. Um, uh, yeah, connected with like Renee and Seth at Cello. Started to like meet these people who maybe exposed me a little bit more to like different types of utility um, that could be unlocked and brought as a result of uh, blockchain, Bitcoin, DeFi, Web3, all these things kind of percolating around. And for me, I think the seminal moment was, um, you know, kind of looking at the the communities and households that I really kind of care about and their pain points, which I understood really well from building companies, but also from investing and living in these markets. Um, and then starting to see uh, builders and kind of connectors, again, like Alpin, who were kind of thinking around the problem sets and saying, well, how can this technology, um, you know, beyond like this, like payments or something, actually reduce the cost to get these services to people or increase the market access for X, Y, and Z uh, or power more insurance, but whatever it is, right? And when I got that lens of it and like started thinking less around like is crypto as kind of like a speculative asset, but more as an enabler for a variety of technologies um, and, and payments and other things, then that's where I think I, I really kind of like started paying attention to it more, although with like a little bit a degree of like skepticism and pragmatism. Um, really where I think I found my community in this was like starting in 20, 2020, um, uh, like as I started to see entrepreneurs who were working at that intersection of crypto and climate, then it was that moment where I said, oh, interesting. Like this is a space that I'm acutely interested in. Um, you, we started having conversations around, you know, web three is a tool for coordination, um, and really kind of a bottom-up potentially approach to like bringing in inclusive voices, uh, bringing in uh, tremendous amounts of capital and like really, really kind of solving some of these coordination issues we see. Um, that kind of conflict to me got me really excited. Um, and that's where Billy really started dive, diving into refi, connecting with builders in this space. And then I think also on the converse side, most of the Web2 companies we invest in are in my networks starting to, to some degree, be that bridge between those that are doing great work on the ground there, but like, how can they utilize essentially this technology and community that exists out there now to really power what they're doing and put on hyperdrive. Um, so that was like, really, that was like the seminal moment for me, like 2020 to now, it just really diving into it. Um, and again, trying to be to whatever degree possible, a connector, a bridge, um, you know, an accelerator, any personal capacity to all these projects that I think are doing great work. Awesome. Yeah. Interesting. Um, cool. So sort of fast forward now to 2022, um, just time stamping this for folks. It may take a few weeks or, you know, might be out over the holidays or something, but right now it's November 22nd, you know, it's just about Thanksgiving for, for those of you who are in the States and, um, we're just a couple weeks 
into the 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 mega bear cycle for, for crypto that has been catalyzed by fraud, FTX fraud, SBF fraud. <laughs> Go on a whole rant about that. I've been getting very upset and <laughs> yet to really start releasing my um upsetness on Twitter. <laughs> uh but um you know, in the context of that, like in the context of like, okay, we're in this bear market, you see, you know, like headlines in the news, like, is this the death of crypto and all the super dramatic, maybe bottom signals in terms of like the market? Um, what are you seeing that are the counterpoints to that sort of like market doom and uncertainty? Um, from where you're sitting at, at Mercy Corps Ventures, like what are the what are the highlights? What is exciting that is being enabled? And I think you know crypto, crypto adjacent, the things that are that you're excited to see coming online that actually you know offer tools and inspiration for fixing. Mm-hmm. problems for regenerating ecosystems and communities what's out there that's really you know keeping what's that golden thread that's that's pulling you and the team right now yeah well first of all i'd say that whenever whenever we look at new technologies crypto or non-crypto we have a very cute principle of, of do no harm right um we recognize we are representing largely global north and western money investing in the global south and emerging markets right and um we have to be thoughtful about what types of companies we are investing in the founders we're backing um the types of of models technologies that um that we are in some way shape or form um accelerating or introducing to certain markets um that is across everything, crypto or non-crypto. Um, we we take that very seriously. Um, and when we do kind of our analysis, we we look at all those types of potential outcomes commercially and impact-wise. And I say that because I think when it particularly comes to Web3 and crypto, especially if we're talking on the financial side, right? It, it's easy to see a future whereby um, you know, we can uh promote the wrong types of financial products or maybe promote financial products without the education or or regulatory environment or kind of disclaimers so that customers in these markets can fully understand the risks they're taking and the potential rewards and so forth. And so so I preface that all with to say that like we we take that all really seriously. Um I think that doesn't mean we don't take any risks, uh, but fundamentally we want to make sure that we do no harm in these markets. Uh number one, number two, that we're um really working with all the other parties and bringing in the voice of potential users, potentially those impacted um, of of governments, our peers and Mercy Corps, the nonprofit, et cetera, to inform the choices we make and like where we're putting capital. Um, so with that, um, I think where we're really excited at the moment is that we've always been long on, I'd say, Web3 technology. Like we we really do think that uh, the infrastructure that's being built is, is one that's advantageous for um, coordinating uh, different stakeholders with potentially different types of incentives. Um, number two, the capitalization, even though it's, it's fallen quite recently, is still something that can't be ignored. Um, when you look at trends of users and assets um, in emerging markets, 
um, it's it's it continues to rise across um, you know key markets facing hyperinflation um, across you know say SMEs that are uh, trying to transact cross borders and and using crypto uh, using stables using Bitcoin and so forth. Uh, it's almost like it's this this system that is plugging along whether or not you know the Economist, New York Times, or others wants to say we're in a down moment. Uh, people are adopting this and seeing utility in it, and that utility is is going to kind of ebb and flow and, and materialize in different ways. Um, and so it's there, and we think that uh, it's going to continue. It's it's going to be shaped by the different type of actors that are participating in the community, and hopefully shape it in ways to avoid what we've seen the last week, the last year, right, and a lot of these huge crashes. Um, so from us, where I think we're excited to like kind of that climate crypto nexus or regeneration nexus is taking a broad view. Um, what I'd say, like, obviously everything related to kind of ecosystem services, the carbon markets is very exciting. There's a lot of traction around this. There's maybe arguably too many things starting in that space, but it's exciting. And it's kind of a bellwether for, um, where that space can go. I think it's a very logical use case to use blockchain and web three as rails, uh, to provide trust and transparency to these markets, um, you know, a lot of what I'd be saying here is repeating what what she, what you talked about, Gregory. Uh, that to me is like a very easy, uh, easily justifiable and arguable argue uh, an easy argument for Web three, right? Like how the carbon markets and ecosystem services should be uh, shaped moving forward. And I think you know most of the key stakeholders would agree that. Adopting blockchain and Web three in some form makes a lot of sense for that, um, and we're pretty long on that. The second area I'd say is kind of the boring Web three, uh, which is, you know, how do we look at making uh, payments more transparent and then tied either through smart contracts or other means uh, to very specific outcomes around um, uh, around like regenerative practices for farmers around different types of products and services bundled or provided to farmers around um, regulatory compliance and certain supply chains. And so even though we haven't yet seen kind of blockchain as a use case or Web3 as like a, a commercial large-scale use case for supply chains, we think that we think that, that is coming in some form. Um, and we've made a few investments in that space. We'll probably make a few others, but it's just a question of, I think, when is it that the moments five years from now and these investments flop before then is it that it's coming driven by regulation and you know, Germany, UK, uh, SEC, New York. I mean, a few places we'll have to see. But I think that all that opportunity to use Web3 to coordinate um, MRV of certain claims made by brands uh, to um, more eloquently provide data rails for uh, like determining whether body was produced in a certain place under certain circumstances, not deforested and so forth, intuitively makes a lot of sense, um, adds a lot of value, and I think is kind of what regulators will be demanding. I don't think it's going to necessarily be consumer driven. Um, and so that's another area that we're seeing a lot of activity. And that's both in like the layer of like the infrastructure for how the data flows, as well as all the multitude of different players that as a result of that infrastructure can do all sorts of great things up and down, you know, value chains. I think the final area that we're pretty excited about within Web3 is more broadly um, just looking at kind of financial resilience. And so generally speaking, um, this this every time we look at kind of financial resilience and that that overlap with climate resilience, there's you know kind of direct and indirect impacts, right? Um, and it's one thing we think about 
quite often as, as an impact fund. And so on the kind of financial resilience side, it's really all about cash flows. Like how do we how do we look at opportunities to help individuals, households, and then SMEs uh, is like really cornerstones of a lot of these economies to smooth cash flows, protect their downside risk, uh, find ways to increase their cash flows. Um, that is an area that I think uh, decentralized finance has a lot of potential value towards. Um, again, that kind of linkage to like a, a regenerative economy or to regenerating an ecosystem is is quite, I'd say, indirect and sometimes tenuous. Uh, but in some cases, it's it's relatively direct. And so, like we're seeing a lot of insurance companies for flood insurance, ag insurance, and so forth, starting to experiment and adopt Web three in the back end for like risk pools. Uh, for experimenting with like smart contracts to reduce the cost of that insurance, um, you know, looking at uh, how they can bundle their insurance premium offering with like regenerative um, uh, practices, carbon credits to subsidize it. Like, there's a lot starting to happen in that kind of bubble um, at the intersection of climate and financial resilience. So that's an area we're tracking and making. We'll be making investments and like paying attention to like, both those Web two companies that kind of put Web three in the back end as well as those Web3 companies that kind of build consortiums of different uh, users and different startups that, you know, add value to whatever specific thing that they're doing. So um, SME is small to medium enterprise? Yeah, correct. So I have a whole like sort of branching pattern of questions, I yeah, guess. Yeah. But the first one to dig in on is you, you mentioned that perhaps the linkage between sort of regeneration, ecological or social regeneration, and the specific thesis around kind of supporting the sort of like sm small enterprise ecosystem in a local area have a tenuous linkage. Can we just talk a little bit more about what are the cases in which there's a strong case for ecological and social regeneration um, related to this focus on mm -hmm. sort of like regional or local enterprise ecosystems? Um, and when is it sort of maybe divergent? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, and this this sometimes, you know, as an impact investor, and just to maybe characterize it for the audience, right? Uh, we're, we're not a traditional venture capital fund and that, you know, we, we can't necessarily write checks within 24 or 48 hours, right? We 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 have to do more diligence on whether something's truly impactful. Uh, we work across a variety of sectors, contexts. So we're we're slower than Silicon Valley. Uh, at the same time, within the impact investment sphere, you know, we we typically can get to a decision point anywhere between like four to eight weeks from an initial conversation and disperse a check. And most impact investors take anywhere from two to twelve months. Um, so we're a lot faster and more risk taking on impact and commercial side than than the impact industry. So we kind of sit awkwardly in the middle, right? Uh, which is great. We work between these worlds. I think though, to like answer your question. Where we need to be comfortable is when we look at like the impact we're trying to create, we have an impact management framework, and that essentially helps us like look at our investment thesis, uh, which is on our website, and anybody can kind of take a deeper look at that, and we can dive into it more. What sectors and investments do we want to prioritize because we think that they have a, a tie to some measurable impact? Like we we want to be able to show that by making investments, we have some additionality. Um, of precipitating some future that is that is beneficial and impactful. And we want to understand the risks around how that might evolve over time. So the reason I, I lay this all out is because sometimes it feels like we're kind of parsing things a little bit, right? Honestly, um, you know, we, we know that generally speaking, productive credit 
digitally delivered to a small shop is is probably going is probably something they they deserve. It's a right. It's going to help their business to grow, and that's a good thing. Then, how do we like extrapolate that to like their climate resilience? Is is there's like another layer of kind of needing to be philosophical about it. It's like, well, well, if they were hit by some weather event, then having that credit would allow them to have more of a cash buffer or maybe some emergency credit. You know, it's, it becomes more and more hypothetical. So sometimes when we look at like these fintech and financial inclusion uh, investments, it's it's clearly a good thing. And there's kind of an indirect relationship with building climate resilience or adaptive capacity. But at the same time, it's it's hard to like really definitively say that this one specific kind of credit product or whatever it is is gonna is gonna have a meaningful difference compared to all the things that need to happen for them to be to be able to adapt. Um, so I think where we see that like really uh, perfect crossover is insurance, which is pretty obvious. You know, there's all sorts of uh, bodies of evidence out there and can point folks to our website. We did a big insurance tech insure tech deep dive, which is a great kind of introduction to this space. But how do we help people, uh, particularly farmers and small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, to essentially protect against downside risks of a huge weather event, uh, which is going to increasingly happen in severity and occurrence in, in these markets, uh, in emerging markets? And so insurance products that are low cost, uh, understandable, uh, sometimes invisible to these uh, individuals, users, households, um, and value chains. And that ensures that if somebody um, has some negative effect, that they will not fall back and be dipped into poverty, but be able to kind of maintain some basis and grow from there. And so we made a bunch of investments around InsureTech. Um, many of these are experimenting with Web3 in the background as well for different, you know, uh, different different method of methods. Um, so that's one where I think there's a pretty nice like overlap between those two. Um, we've seen that play out in kind of a a regional space whereby there's these different kind of like regional risk pools. Uh, for instance, one in Indonesia amongst like a group of different microfinance institutions, which essentially are contributing money towards a risk pool. So that if anyone uh, is is kind of hit by some sort of disaster, uh, then that risk pool releases money immediately so that MFI can eventually essentially support customers of that MFI to quickly, you know, stimulate the economy to go and get back online and so forth. And you can see that replicated in digital means. So we have another company in flood insurance, which, you know, essentially can help um, on a variety of fronts, you know, can help a government say, figure out when, where a flood might occur to provide early warnings, uh, get people out of the way, assets out of the way, so forth. Uh, it can help that government to actually plan aid very effectively and quickly. It can help that government access emergency funds from the UN or other pools, World Bank, to like respond very quickly. And then from a business perspective, it can help them to essentially underwrite insurance policies to better understand, uh, okay, what, what factories or what kind of critical elements of this value chain might be affected and how can I access funds to get those back online as quickly as possible to, again, help, say, all the farmers around there. So insurance is like a pretty obvious use case where there's a nice overlap. I think the other one uh, would be around certainly it's still relatively early, but anything around kind of like carbon markets, ecosystem services, as that relates to kind of payments to those uh, individuals and land stewards, which is kind of the critical one. Um, and so that's where there's a clear, you know, overlap between the financial resilience of a lot of the farmers that we work with, Mercy Corps broadly, we, as well as some of our portfolio companies and Mercy Corps Ventures is really tied to the the resilience of of their farming and their farming business. Um, 
Now, a lot of the ag tech startups out there that are attempting to uh, help those farmers to uh, essentially improve their livelihoods are focused on um, uh, extractive production, kind of conventional uh, production. Um, and that's just the, the easiest low carrot fruit. That's uh, the easiest way to drive up incomes and so forth. Um, and so I think that the opportunity to uh, find ways to financially incentivize as well as finance uh, regenerative practices, whether that's through carbon markets uh, or simply through um, alternative kind of financing schemes that bundle a range of different, you know, um, a range of different services is a huge opportunity because often one of the biggest area, one of the biggest gaps in moving, say, a farming enterprise in a lot of these markets to more sustainable or kind of regenerative practices is simply the financing bottleneck. And the financing bottleneck is also uh, encapsulated in a lack of like downside production insurance, which is also potentially connected and de-risked by irrigation. So it all kind of comes together. Um, and that's, that's where I think like ultimately when we look at like kind of finance, especially when it pertains to like the most kind of hard to reach communities or challenging situations, it's, it's kind of that core piece that's bundled with a variety of other initiatives. And so, so yeah, that's, that's the way we've kind of approached it. And I think those are the two, you know, kind of biggest use cases or the biggest ones where we see that overlap. That makes sense. How do you think about like, like obviously in dealing with FinTech generally and crypto specifically, there's always going to be a certain degree to which a given project or investment may expose sort of community members or retail like follow on retail investors to risk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we see that with FTX, right? There, so there were sophisticated investors, you know, in the collapse, I'm sure that they got hurt, but then there's a lot of other, you know, it's like smaller holders or smaller actors that got hurt as things were happening. And, you know, obviously setting aside, I don't think, I, I think the level of due diligence you guys are doing probably means that for the most part, outright scams are off the table <laughs> although i would have hoped that <laughs> some that somebody would have filtered ftx um maybe we can maybe, actually we should have a little conversation like what went wrong there from investors so let's shelf that for a second <laughs> i'm curious like what are the what's the thought process and what are the safeguards and and how does it in, come into your thinking around just like protecting like the like the do no harm side of things that you mentioned, you know, like how do you assess the the risk, the downside risk of an investment for a community or or downstream actors as you're making your investment decision? Yeah, so I mean, I think it starts with our thesis and just having a really clear view of you know again how do different models, if we take them to their kind of logical conclusion or, or scenarios of conclusion, create impact? And then what are the risks around that? So we do a lot of pre-work, I think, of trying to anticipate the types of models we're going to see. Um, in Web3, I mean, we, we, we're not oracles, we're not wizards. And so, you know, the thesis we have today and kind of the technologies we're looking for and the models we're looking for are going to look generally pretty woefully out of date within you know, 12, 24 months, especially anything related to kind of, you know, blockchain and blockchain river technologies is moving so fast, which is exciting. Um, so that's where we start, I think, is like, how do we kind of do the right screening? We're looking at like 2000 deals a year. Uh, how do we kind of screen in the most high potential, most like kind of thesis fit deals? And then when we get into diligence, a lot of it is around 
I'm trying to understand like the team's commitments to that impact and vision. Uh, different different founders will talk in different ways. I mean, we have founders who don't even really talk about you know impact or impact management. It's not part of their vernacular, which is fine. And then we have others who you know come from the World Bank or what have you, and they they really speak that language. And so it's not necessarily about like the language that one uses, but it's like, do we believe that the team in front of us, who's really the driver of this, like the, the vision and the values and then like the hard decisions we're going to have to make at all these different inflection points, do we think they're really committed to inclusivity, empowerment, and like building something that meaningfully improves people's lives, right? Um, it deliver, that delivers a value proposition. And when there's trade-offs, what path do we think they're going to take based on what we can, you know, cycle psychologically assess kind of, right? Because we definitely see a lot of entrepreneurs where they're kind of intellectually interested in the problem. Um, but we get the sense that their model, especially certain models, could just be extractive at some point. And we're just not sure that that company is is going to make the right decisions or going to, you know, choose the right fork in the road. And again, our thesis for a lot of what we're investing in is that the most successful companies and emerging markets in the future are going to not just have to have climate as kind of a lens or you know risks that they have to mitigate, but more that this is to some degree perversely an opportunity to reshape and rebuild um, entire economies, entire value chains, like entire financial systems. And we want those who are going to rebuild those with new types of values because uh, we think that's going to be like the durable solution and the most interesting and impactful and commercially viable solution moving forward. So the team is like critical to that. We really want to just understand the values, what drives them and what motivates the decisions they're going to make. And I think the second is, you know, again, just like thinking intellectually and then with the entrepreneur, okay, what's their product? How's that going to evolve? Um, how do we, what's the value proposition currently to users? Um, how, what are the risks around that, depending on where the market takes them? Um, what are like, what are mitigants to that? Is the team thinking through that? Um, and, you know, again, like we understand a lot of these are like kind of idea stage, maybe a hair above. And so we, we're comfortable in taking risks around it. But we want to kind of do that scenario analysis and then also try to get the team's opinion on it, the founding team, to see how they'll think through these, again, key decision points. Um, I think the final is that, you know, again, we kind of look at a long view of what's the reach of a lot of these, uh, you know, companies we're talking to. Are they kind of going to develop a product that finds more of a home for like the upper class or the upper middle class? Or are they, you know, kind of reaching populations that are typically marginalized or not included? Um, and then what's the rational path of them to be commercially successful? There, and how do we determine that? And so that's like the third piece. So I think just looking at that, like that impact reach, um, as well as, you know, the breadth and depth of that, you know, impact. And we kind of do that, do some like kind of scenarios around it. How might it evolve? And again, like how comfortable we are with the risk of how that evolves in different ways. Um, so that that's the way we do it. And I think like specifically in financial technologies, we do have like very specific perspectives on you know for instance like we're we're not investing um i say this but you know who knows maybe we'll find a, a reason to do it we're not investing in unsecured uh consumer credit in africa like bar none we will not do it because uh, we just see way too many houses of cards we see people getting a one dollar loan that they don't pay off and getting a negative rating or negative flag on their credit history in kenya which is going to you know ruin their lives um, we see companies spraying and praying without any regard towards like actually making productive loans or figuring out ways to like make that loan work for their customers. It's it's just it's it, it's it is and it is becoming a crisis, right? 
Um, so I think there are certain areas where we say we won't touch it because we don't think it has impact and because we also think it actually has negative impact. And then there's other areas where we decide to focus because we think these are kind of inflection points or hinge factors for you know how the financial system becomes more inclusive and productive. And those are the ones we choose to focus on. That makes sense. Well, so now let's um now let's talk about FTX a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess first thing to ask, did you guys have any exposure to the FTX contagion? <laughs> No, no, we did not. I mean, we joke about having a lot of FTT, but we did we did not. But <laughs> and I mean, so I also like Regen. I mean, I think generally speaking, the whole Cosmos ecosystem was far away from FTX. Yeah. Culturally and just in terms of like, you know, investor exchange relationships, all of that. And that includes Regen. Um, I also always looked at it kind of sideways it always felt off to me mm -hmm. the whole time i was like what's going on like they've got this trading group they've got ftt they've got fdx they've grown super fast like something is clearly like you know anyway my radar of like caution this is probably a problem without knowing any <laughs> details was quite like i was you know there's just lots of red flags from my perspective yeah i'm, I'm curious but, but i've been really thinking like how did <laughs> FTX becomes so central and so sort of like vaunted and well-regarded, you know, so like many top tier firms invested in FTX. They really sort of like got this like, you know, um, SBF got this golden boy status, like all of these things happened. How does that happen? How does that happen? I mean, it's sort of like Theranos or, or like Bernie Madoff. I don't know. It feels like there's this pattern in which particular type of character is so able to like hack investor relationships and take advantage of that you know what what uh what are your thoughts on that sitting in the <laughs> sitting in the investor seat like what's going on there why yeah. what was compelling about ftx do you think and like mm -hmm. why did so many otherwise you know sophisticated investors get themselves in so much trouble with with that yeah, well, you know, I can't put myself in the, the same level as like Tomasek or, or Sequoia or others, right? Um, have billions more dollars to manage. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'd have to look through our tracker. I don't think FDX pitched us, but, you know, may, maybe they did. Maybe, maybe we passed. Um, so I, I can only surmise. But I think that, you know, from our perspective, you know, the, the crypto markets generally have been just kind of an insane place to be investing, right? Um, over the last four years. And people have made a lot of money. Um, there's been more money than ever has existed kind of seeking returns the last three years as a result of the Fed printing money and, and you know historically low inflation and um, interest rates. I mean, there's just tons of money out there seeking a home to generate returns. And I think VC was kind of the tip of the spear at that. Um, and in private equity as well. And so as crypto went on this you know, huge bull run fueled with retail investor money as well, uh, I, I can surmise and, and could personally see this in the deals we were looking at is you had you know, blue chip investors to some extent looking for quote unquote safe homes, um, you know, safe, safe-ish bets in the crypto space, right? And so centralized exchange, you know, um, you know, kind of, white American founder with a good story, uh, arguably a good story or a story that like was interesting to them, 
um, somewhat regulated uh, until they moved to the Bahamas. Um, and then, you know, I don't really know the regulatory environment there, so I won't comment on it. But, you know, it ticked enough of the boxes. And then you just have a sense of like FOMO. Okay, well, you know, these guys are in, so let's put our money. Um, and, and ultimately, it's kind of a way for them to get exposure, my guess, uh, to something that seems like a, a reasonably safe bet uh, within the crypto space, right? Um, and I think that it's just a type of deal we would never really do. So I, again, I can't like, I, yeah, I don't know if I could surmise much more than that. But I definitely see the dynamics in not so much recently, the last two years, all the crypto deals we've seen in emerging markets. It's just so much money seeking to come and get exposure to this space, seeing as crypto is like perfect for emerging markets, it's going to explode, a lot of speculation on top of it. And therefore, you just see rounds closing really fast. Founders, you know, I think SBF did this incredibly well, creating FOMO and, and this mystique around them. So it's like, okay, you got to put the money in, write the check or you're out. And we just saw that time and again, where, you know, people are raising tremendous amounts of money for a concept that uh, was kind of crazy. You know, the white paper would make no sense. Um, it didn't really tangibly deliver any value that we could see to individuals on the ground. It wasn't really any better than the current financial system and in many ways, potentially more risky. Um, you just saw things getting funded willy nilly. Um, and I think founder friendly kind of terms and environment uh, invited less scrutiny. Um, and so people would kind of put money in, spray and pray. Um, and unfortunately, and I think you know, again, where we're really concerned is that you have companies raising money and then onboarding users um, in a place where regulatory-wise, it's either not allowed or it's gray area and not like, you know, again, everybody should do their own research, but th there is a degree to which where consumer protections and at least some minimum viable level of consumer protections in some of these markets doesn't exist. And so, you have the opportunity for some of these firms to kind of sell assets that they claim are, you know, US dollar backed or whatever it is. And then in fact, they aren't. And, you know, again, if it's me losing money doing this on Twitter, whatever, you know, um, but if it's, you know, a small, small farmer in Cameroon, who's got a few dollars extra savings every week, and they've kind of been sold something that's not true, and they don't have any recourse with a regulator or third party, that's, that's pretty catastrophic. And there's, that's a huge ethical boundary that I don't think should be crossed. And so, so I think I think we've seen a lot of that kind of implode. Um, the Dow movement too, like again, the long term, I think it's going to be super exciting. We're already seeing that, you know, from the ashes, like some really interesting things arising and uh, really incredible communities rising up in, in Africa and in Latin America in particular. Um, but then a lot that raised a ton of money trying to like recreate cash transfers or aid or do all these things, and then just kind of blowing through the money or not being very transparent how they spent it. Um, so yeah, it's been a little bit of a tough year, but again, like the underlying kind of value proposition of the technology of the financial products, I think is there. It's just a matter of um, the right types of builders, I think, that are proximate to the users and understand how to make that translate to delivering long-term value. And, and ultimately, those are the ones I think are going to survive anyway, because a lot of the consumers and users are, you know, they're not easy to reach and they're they're more sophisticated than people give them credit for. Um, and I think the onus is on these. Uh, projects and protocols to really understand that and and you know demystify what they're doing if they're going to uptake or vice versa work with startups that are web two and really know these markets um, and you kind of sit on the back end um, and so I think that's the control for some of the success hopefully that's a really you know good provocation there at the end there around 
who are the users and how can you be close to them as an entrepreneur, as someone who's building? You know, I think it's so easy. Um, and I think we do pretty good at this at Region, but I also think it's so easy to get trapped in thinking about investors or in thinking about the technology <laughs> or in yeah. thinking about the, there's all of these sort of like shibboleths to like lose your focus instead of kind of coming back and thinking who are the core stakeholders here? Who are the people who are going to be daily using the software? What what do they need? And, and how does this solve like approximate real world present moment problem mm -hmm. for them? You know, and I, and I agree. I think it's, been particularly hard in crypto. I think crypto does a particularly bad job at this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think in a way, like maybe the dot com boom was the first iteration of people doing a bad job at that in technology of like, it got to the point where it's like, who, you know, what was it for? It wasn't clear. Like what was that website going to do or whatever is happening and then maybe you know we went through this whole cycle after that of web 2 getting really good in a lot of ways around having yeah. a product focus on users it got pretty extractive of course it's more about how much time are the users spending instead of what's the value that they're getting in a lot of ways yeah. I would argue but nonetheless i think there was a lot of discipline like product discipline and yeah. i think web 3 you don't see that a lot. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of projects without a lot, very much product discipline or without very good focus on users. It's pretty common, you know, that's focused on something else. The story's about something else. It's about liquidity or it's about whatever it is. It's not about, you know, like there's this um, person and this person has a problem <laughs> and that problem is important to help solve uh, because when their problem is solved, they can help other people. So, you know, there's sort of like, you get really concrete about that. I think that this type of big market downturn, as you're saying, like the positives of that are whatever, insert whatever metaphor, the wheat and the chaff or the phoenix rising from the fire or whatever, <laughs> whatever makes sense. These bigger down cycles, they certainly force people to really get back to basics and build solid relationships. So, yeah. Well, no, just to build on that, I, I mean, I, I think that like one of the hard things about a lot of what we see in Web3 is just that, um, I mean, like, especially what you're doing, you know, regen, right? And the whole ecosystem is out of necessity, you're building very complex infrastructure and products, right? And all of it kind of needs to move together or it's dependent on a stack of other actors out there building other things in the ecosystem. And so it is like, like, yeah, sometimes it's easy to, to say, well, you know, there's not really a user or product focus. Um, and, you know, there's complications around that. At the same time, it's just, it's just so much more complex um, than if I were just starting like a SaaS company to, I don't know, like make carbon project development easier, right? That's like super defined. There's a playbook for it. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to know exactly how you run and start that business and be efficient with capital and like what you need to achieve. Um, but what with a lot of people are trying to do with like community currencies or, you know, impact markets trying to do with like universal basic income, um, there's not like a clear playbook for how to do that yet. And you have to kind of embrace that complexity. Um, and you have to, I don't know, we have to find collectively like how we do that in a way that's efficient with capital because right now capital is going to be super constrained. Right. And so, so is it, leading with product to some extent maybe um or leading with yeah again what like leading maybe better articulation 
and kind of a, a roadmap that's tied directly towards these pain points for different actors and like maybe strategically choosing a few of those is kind of like the minimum viable product or minimum viable complexities. I think you put it right uh, that you're going to choose to embrace. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to like simplify it. I think it's harder for web three builders. It's just, there's just more that everybody's trying to tackle. And maybe it's just a question of like how much can be tackled. And then to what degree do we just need to kind of provoke more interoperability, more collaboration, more like letting go of components. Um, because that's where I'm, I'm really, I'm personally really excited because like when I, I, I come to Web3 from sort of Web2, right? I, you know, I haven't built a tech company. I haven't built companies in 10 years. Probably need to get back into that to stay fresh. But like, I think that like, I see companies who are really doing incredible MRV on the ground who would be the perfect complement for, uh, for Regen, for MRV Collective, for any of these folks, right? And, and same, same with like a lot of Web3 projects that are pitching us on how to you know, help farmers do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, well, there's like, you know, pool on our portfolio works with 10 million farmers or one acre fund, this incredible nonprofit works with like 10 million. Uh, these guys would be great partners and they can do five of the 10 things you're trying to do probably a lot better than you'll ever do. And so, you know, why don't you find a way to work with them? So I think, I think we're in that moment now of like where these ecosystems are starting to come together a little bit more in, in uh, emerging markets. And these, this will be more than no, the norm, I guess, like the refire DeFi mullet. Um, it's happening for sure in fintech. Um, and I think in regenerative finance, that's going to be like the next, my prediction for 2023 is that's where it's going to really go. And that's where it's going to really catch fire. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you're right in, in calling out that, I mean, we certainly grapple with this, right? Which is that, I mean, first off, when you shift from web two to web three, there's a change in design paradigm in which there is, and if it's really Web3, you're consciously building on or creating a new digital intermediary, a protocol, right? That that all users have equal access to. And like, you're sort of like creating an entity, right? That is different from just like, hey, I own this website. Right. You're, you're like hard coding sort of a digital constitution or algorithmic constitution around a protocol that has rules to upgrade it. Right. Or you're building on one that already exists. And so it has much more of a touch of sort of like designing like civic engagement or designing a political system or sort of a political economy than just sort of like building a user service. And so you have to sort of theorize around these abstractions of politics and economics and sort of have some first principles behind it saying, like, this is the way this ought to work in order to serve these different stakeholders who otherwise. And, and I think the, the, thi the thing to recognize is there are some situations where that is really important to do that level of work. <laughs> and there are probably a lot of other situations where it doesn't make any sense. It's just like overcomplicating things, right? Because a business should just like provide a service, like just go and figure out what people need and like provide it better. But then there are other situations where there are genuinely, I think, a big part of the structural inequalities and the like mega structural challenges like climate finance, carbon markets and other things, there just are genuinely pretty much adversarial 
there's an adversarial situation in which different stakeholders have deeply different entrenched interests. And there has to be sort of like a common protocol that everyone is opting into that that allows those different interests to be mitigated towards a common goal. So thinking about the system there, it's an interesting balance. I mean, I would say that the balance there from my perspective is you you need to be able to have some first principles and you need to be able to articulate some of that, but you also need to be sort of like open and agile and make it um, something that can be upgraded and adopt because otherwise you can't, it's, it's very hard, at least in climate, right? I think it's different. This is different if we're thinking about like money, money, like Bitcoin, like you could, you can like pre-program a money system and let it go like, oh, there's proof of stake. It's like the Cosmos hub. All it does is secure itself and inflate itself through like it does that. There's a self perpetuating thing. Like the inflation rewards incentivize people to stake tokens and then it secures the network. Right. Just like mining, like all Bitcoin does is incentivize people to plug computers into the wall and like mint Bitcoins. Like it's very, it's super just sort of like, that's the game and that's what it's incentivizing. But you get into these sort of, you get into the climate game and you don't have the, there's, it's impossible to create an artificial box and just say, oh, we can just design this single computer program and everybody could opt into it and we'll solve climate change. Yeah. Because it's complex and it's emergent and it involves you know, all of these different actors and, you know, the science is probabilistic and not deterministic, all of these reasons why you can't mm-hmm. do that. So, but at the same time, you do need these sort of like meta systems or these hyperstructures to actually get everybody working. So it's a very interesting, you know, design challenge, right? To hold that smallholder farmer or an NGO or, you know, an NRV, MRV company you know, in a corporate or buyer or a nation state to hold them and their interests and understand and engage them, you know, try to engage them when they don't necessarily have the sort of like technical or scientific skills to be reasoning fully around a sh- like what a shared protocol needs to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, you know, it's like this tension between selling them an idea and inviting them to co-design the idea. <laughs> it's sort of like toggling back and forth between those two actions. That's been my experience of trying yeah. to sort of like bootstrap things. If if what you're concerned with is actually sort of the integrity of the, the, the meta system itself, if that's the aim. Yeah. I think it gets much simpler if your aim is just sort of like more concise and the aim is like, oh, our aim is to have better science behind a carbon credit. Yeah. Right. And um, or our aim is to automate data collection or our aim is to. And those are all important pieces. Right. Um, Our aim is to automate carbon offset purchases. But my continual and this is um, I mean, probably this is probably revealing. But my my challenge with all of that is you can have all of those component parts working well and you can still have a failed system. Yeah. Yeah. If there isn't it's like the gov- if the governance and standards and sort of like yeah the, the digital infrastructure that's weaving all that together isn't um up 
to the task at hand, mm. you, could, you can you can be getting things incrementally better. I I think you know this yeah. is our this is my theory. I think you can get specific things incrementally better by focusing on a single user and just like hammering at home, and you could still end up with a completely failed market, basically. Yeah. So how do you weave that together? How do you create sort of like that sense of community owned owned infrastructure that solves issues that no single actor can solve for itself. This is like, it's the perennial, it mm-hmm. feels to me like it's it's one of the perennial problems. I, it feels to me like it's also, in a way, it's what people are grappling with at COP, like the nation yeah. states are grappling with this at COP with Paris, you know, they're yeah. sort of, you know, there's adversarial arguments back and forth, and there isn't really a meta structure that's pushing the imperative, that's sort of like saying like, it's got to happen, other than just sort of like, climate change itself (laughs) which like at the end of the day nature bats last right (laughs) but yeah you know yeah oh go ahead no go ahead no i was gonna say i mean i think you hit on yeah exactly the right thing it's like uh, and honestly too for most most of our investments it's a lot of it's kind of like prag pragmatic like incrementalism right um like hopefully the cluster and constellation investment we're making really it's some way, shape, or form uh, challenges and forces changes in the system. Uh, but you know, generally, when we're looking at specific projects or initiatives, like the the easier bets to make are on those that have a very tangible and measurable product or service, right? That that can lead to some incremental um, increase in, in resilience, livelihoods, whatever it is. Challenging the system as itself is is like absolutely was necessary, and I think like those are that's. That's why I think is uniquely kind of fun to be honest about um, the Web three space is a lot of what's trying what you know we're all collectively trying to build or, or partner on, collaborate on is is really building kind of a new way of how uh, things are coordinated, how um, how we generate kind of trust and consensus, how we agree upon certain things, how we incentivize certain things, and it gets yeah very philosophical very fast. Um, and so I think it's like what's the meeting of those two worlds. Um, because yeah, you're gonna. I think you're gonna have different actors focus on different ones, and maybe some crossing those boundaries. But but I think that where you know, to your point, like it's a lot of it's important. But um, to me, it's like the architecture of Web three should uh, enable, and you know what what you're doing at Regen, what others are building, right? Um, that that is kind of an open space, generally speaking, for other actors to plug into if and when they're ready, or where they can add value to that system. And that's where I think that um, that's where I think widening the tent um, allows us to achieve that um, a lot faster. Um, and and how we deploy capital towards that end um, is kind of yeah I think like the critical opportunity, right? Because if you have too much investment on one side versus the other um, or the other, right? We don't really make a meaningful difference. Totally, and and that's always the balance, right? Is is how do we um... You know, I, I think about this a lot. You know, how do we keep, how do we fit within a sort of a pragmatic I- incrementalist paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can, where you, you know, or is it possible? But I mean, I think this has been the our aim at Regen is to to fit with and perf- outperform in a you know incrementalist process. 
where it's like, we just need to be able to deliver an incremental improvement in satellite-based DMRV for agroforestry, or we just need to be able to have better, cheaper soil health and carbon monitoring available to specific people to bring things, or we just need to be able to make it you know, quicker and easier. Okay, cool. But at the same time, taking like doing that in a way that lines up with this like you know we're swinging for the bleachers basically like there is a paradigm shift that's possible like there and in needed and that's my concern is i personally deeply believe that the paradigm shift has to happen otherwise you know the incremental stuff won't you know won't add up so how do you sort of like catalyze enable and you know sort of like i guess um What's the word? I guess um, you know, future cast. It's not future cast. Prefigure. How do you mm-hmm. prefigure the paradigm shift into how you're doing the incremental work so that mm-hmm. it's like baked in and it sort of like helps it shift, helps mm-hmm. shift really take place? Because I think that's where the, you know, I mean, from my perspective, what we're really talking about here. I love the 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 WEF recently put out a little paper they're always doing their papers around the state of you know different markets and other things and the paper that they put out i think you know a couple months ago maybe was that the the their calculation this is always sort of absurd but the the value that they calculated that ecosystems provide per year to the global economy is 124 trillion mm-hmm. which i'm pretty wow. sure is basically like the same as the whole global economy at this stage. <laughs> I think with the printing of, you know, all of those dollars over the last couple of years, I think we're sitting somewhere. I mean, it's north of a hundred trillion, mm-hmm. right? It's just like the the normal extractive economic churn is, you know, north of a hundred trillion dollars a year. So just to say it's like 50-50, <laughs> right? The, 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 like the, the natural world is providing that much value to our economy right and the moment that that becomes visible and incorporated and woven in that's really like uh, has there ever been a value incorporated into an economic system at that magnitude and Mm -hmm. scale before in the past i mean probably the the only time the the biggest shift there would be like oil yeah where there's this massive economic value that all of a sudden is like incorporated into the economy and then all of these things happen right it's called the industrial revolution (laughs) (laughs) you get changed everything right it changed everything and um, that's where I think we are. I think we're at this moment. We're like bumping up against. It's not really just like oh, like the voluntary carbon markets. What's really going on here is like oh, as a civilization, we are starting to understand that we need to internalize this massive value that yeah. that, that that the economy already takes advantage of, um, and figure out how to manage that value well. In a way, I mean that's a very utilitarian way of putting it and you know you could be talking about it in different terms but it's a pretty giant shift right um, yeah well i mean i think it, I, yeah you know i think you're 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 right on i mean i think that and like yeah oil is like the first one that makes sense i 
I feel like insurance industry intuitively knows this, right? On the other side of the equation, like what are the risks to these assets? And we can price those risks and so forth. And so, I mean, as always, I think too, the risk too is um, you see that with like, you know, real estate and kind of like land assets. Um, there's an asymmetry of information in terms of like who who decides to um, or is able to uh, understand the opportunity and the value of that opportunity uh, to the detriment of, of others who are slower to do so. And so like, that's why I think the extent to which it's like, how do you do this in such a way where um, it's not driven by the financial sector, ideally, right? Um, because it could be driven first, and it already is in many ways, while the rest of the world catches up um, in nation states or other paradigms, right? Um, and it just seems like, I, I agree, I think this is where we're going. Um, but like, what's the practical way to precipitate that in an inclusive way so we don't just kind of replicate, you know, essentially what oils become, right? Um, in which case, you know, a bunch of folks go acquire all the prime land in Canada that we're going to be, you know, I mean, you could just see another future where it's just replicating kind of our current system uh, to the, the detriment of many, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So with the last 10 minutes or so, I'm just sort of like following my curiosity. I'm, you know, I think there's a, a fair number of listeners who are probably refi entrepreneurs or sort of developers. There's also probably a couple of other sort of like segments or cohorts that listen to the podcast. But for those folks, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind just giving a little bit of advice that just sort of like, you know, you, you see deals, you see people coming a lot that are sort of like pitching a vision, like sending you a deck or, you know, um, getting referred to you in a deal. What, what's the, you know, what are the things that you think maybe people don't automatically know if they're doing a first time startup and they've got a really great idea about, you know, the, the process and what you're looking for and like how to engage productively, respectfully, and have a, like a high likelihood of, you know, and I think in this case, I don't want to like put it as getting funded because I actually think my experience is there's a there's a deeper connection that needs to take place, which is like making sure that you fully get what they're doing and can assess it holistically for like, is this a fit for Mercy Corps? You know, like what what's your advice or, you know, what are the things that you would just sort of like invite people maybe also even to understand about your process and how you and your team are approaching it so that people get that and can kind of attune to your reality. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I don't think I, I mentioned this at the top, but, you know, for those who don't know us, we are essentially uh, the impact investment arm corporate venture capital fund at Mercy Corps, which is a global nonprofit. Um, so we are exclusively looking at uh, startups uh, that are tech enabled and and building in our operating in emerging markets. And so that's kind of our our top line, you know, uh, who we are and what we're kind of looking for from a functional perspective. Uh, but everything we invest in, we really want to see some eventual impact uh, around climate resilience and financial resilience. Like what are the technologies, models, and services that will help communities, households, individuals to uh, build uh, climate resilience and financial resilience. That's, that's yeah, everything needs to tie to that, basically. Um, so we do anywhere between two to five investments a quarter, usually pre-seed, seed stage. 
Um, we do a mixture of like web two, web three deals. Uh, most of our portfolio of about 45 companies now um, are, you know, web two. Um, but then we have probably another, I'd have to wager six to eight that are focused on web three or, you know, that's, that's their main kind of um, uh, that they are web three. Um, and so we work across those. Um, the other component uh, is that we do, we have a separate vehicle called our piloting proof of concept fund. And what that is, is to uh, look at proof of concept of emerging blockchain and blockchain derivative and climate tech technologies, uh, trying to see if they have an impact or value proposition in emerging markets, try to, you know, go through the hype and to see, you know, could, for instance, um, uh, for instance, integrating smart contracts uh, in insurance products leads to better customer farmer experience of these ag insurance products in Kenya, for example. Um, you know, small amounts of money to grant fund the pilot to determine whether or not this technology really uh, can send a signal to the industry and, and say this should be scaled up. Um, so when when entrepreneurs are engaging with us, we always have those two hats. Like number one is our investment fund. We we of course want to make investments. We want to back really compelling, impactful entrepreneurs. Um, we want to help them as much as we can and possibly hustle to make them successful. Uh, but at the same time, we're also you know looking at relationships where either through our grant fund or through just other partnerships we have to help them be successful. Most of our team have been builders and founders before and operators in emerging markets. So to the extent we can, we're trying to help connect any person we meet with other capital providers. Uh, we're trying to help them expand in markets. We we do what we can to help, right? Within the paradigm that we we see 2,000 companies a year, um, you know, we, we have limits on our human capacity. Uh, to take everything forward. So we always ask for your your patience um, and your empathy as we you know try to help everybody out, try to get people to quick yes or no and not and be efficient with their time. 2,000 companies a year, how many of those companies are you investing in every year? Um, it depends on the year and the different cycles, but we see around 2,000 a year. And we this year, I think we will probably end up doing anywhere between 14 to 20 investments. Um, so for an impact fund, that's quite a lot, um, especially given, you know, at the moment we have a portfolio of about 45 companies. Um, so it just, yeah, it just depends. We're not, and again, we're not a spray and pray investor. So we do take a little bit more time. We are looking at like portfolio construction across our three main areas, which are ag and food systems, uh, inclusive fintech and climate smart services. So we are trying to be very thesis driven and strategic about what types of investments we're making to like really make a meaningful dent in the system that we're trying to change. Um, and so that that means we're going to be, you know, we do focus investments in certain kind of clusters. Like we're very excited about um, Web3 as it relates to like decentralized finance, as it relates to carbon markets, ecosystem services. So we're making a cluster of bets around there. Um, we're also very excited about kind of the future of food systems and like post-harvest loss and cold storage and so forth. So we're making some investments around that, um, which you know could potentially have Web3 or DeFi in the back end. Uh, so that really that really leads where we choose to focus our investments. Uh, but as far as how refi founders you know engage with us, I think first and foremost, you know, just like uh users um and, and product design, it's like knowing your investor. So I mean I I always I, I never bear any ill will. Um, but you know, the 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 founders who come and have done a little bit of homework on our thesis and where they think they fit into it and have kind of, you know, um helped prep their pitch and tailor it to 
Mercy Corps Ventures in particular are, I think, much more likely to kind of get, you know, our time, which is limited across really four people looking at all these companies. And then two, um, you know, we can be really efficient with our time, right? Uh, because we can kind of focus where, um, well, A, we can know if it's the right fit for us. Uh, they've kind of self-identified that maybe. And then two, they can kind of come to that conversation, kind of knowing, A, the vehicles we have, as well as like where they think they fit into our portfolio. And then that way we can kind of like work around that hypothesis a little bit better. Um, and really have a defined conversation. Um, our process is relatively straightforward. I mean, it's pretty gated. It usually takes anywhere between, uh, well, the minimum is taken as two weeks, but usually realistically four to eight weeks, depending on, you know, again, kind of the particular circumstances. Uh, but it's an initial call. And then, you know, essentially every Wednesday, our team reviews deals and does a screen and determines kind of our key hurdles to get to a yes on that deal. And then we engage with the company again. And if we feel like um, you know this is something we could bring to our investment committee, usually do a call with uh, the rest of our team and the entrepreneurs, pepper them with kind of our key questions, really hone in on say the two two to three risks that we see or kind of areas we need to get comfortable with to defend this to our investment committee, and then prepare a memo and you know take it for a decision point. Um, so it can be relatively quick. If the, the the easier we understand the model. And specifically how it ties to our thesis and the impact it can create and the risks around that, that allows us to move through that process way more quickly and efficiency efficiently. That makes a lot of sense. Um, cool. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. That. Hopefully that's yeah. helpful for everybody. Yeah. Now the last thing I'd, I'll just give maybe a specific thing on, on refi. I mean, I think a lot of the refi solutions we see are more structural um, in nature. And so that direct impact to like a specific household individual SME, whatever it is. Um, it's harder to make. And so I think that for refi founders, um, and we're we're exploring this space. So I think we'll have conversations with pretty much everybody. But the more that you can describe in very like ideally tangible terms and ideally like with actual references, um, how this solution kind of changes whatever system you're working on to benefit a single persona or a few personas. The more you can do that, the more it allows us to like take it from way up here down to very specifically, oh, I can see how this would reach, you know, this market, or this is how potentially support indigenous communities in the Amazon. Like I think sometimes in these pitches or white papers, that that linkage is not explicit. Um, and if we have to develop it on our own, then you know it's it's harder for us to get comfortable that that's going to be something we can bring through the process. So that'd be one is just like trying to make a very tangible, like what's the value proposition? What are the pain points? Like, how did you come to understand these? Like, what's your story, right? Coming to this. And like, how does what you're developing ultimately lead to some meaningful, you know, change in the circumstances of these personas? So that's one that we see missing quite a bit. It's it's much more kind of philosophical and high level. And, and I would just encourage people to take it down to that level to the extent they can. That makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. It was yeah. great. It was a pleasure to get to chat with with you a little bit. And um, I think this is the first time on the Planetary Regeneration podcast I've done sort of like an explicitly sort of VC <laughs> episode. Um, so hopefully it's useful because I know, you know, increasingly it th we're all operating in a space that, you know, obviously needs investment, is increasingly getting investment and building fluency and um, kind of literacy about how how to do that responsibly and how to build the movement together, I think is is really exciting. So thanks for taking a little time to kind of unpack your work and um, give everybody a little window into into what Mercy Corps Ventures is doing.
Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity and and really, yeah, uh, privileged to be part of this community and being supportive of our Iron Weekend. And, and thanks for all your, your great work, Gregory, and the whole Regen team. It's been wonderful to get to know you all as well. Awesome. Thank you.